This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Business Made Simple, hosted by Donald Miller and brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. Business Made Simple takes the mystery out of growing your business. Longtime listeners will know that Donald Miller's been on this show at least a couple times. There's a recent episode I want to point out, how to make money with your current products. Man, such an important lesson about leveraging what you've already done to get more from it. Listen to Business Made Simple wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Chance. My guest today is Mike Michalowicz. He's the author of Get Different, Fix This Next, Clockworth Profit First, The Pumpkin Plan, and The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. He is also the founder of Profit First Professionals. The Profit First Professionals organization is designed to support accountants, bookkeepers, and other financial professionals to substantially differentiate themselves in the market. We are going to talk about one of Mike's old books because he's come back and revised it, really added a lot of new content to it. Evergreen, important topic of getting more done, managing your time. So Mike, welcome to the show. This is at least your third or fourth time here. Yeah, it's awesome to be back with you, John. Thanks. Thanks for the pre-show conversation. That was fun. Oh yeah, we had to get around and start recording some of this, didn't we? Uh, so clockwork, this is a question I always ask people when they revise books, you know, David Merriman Scott's been on this show. I think he's on like the eighth version or ninth version of his oh, like the new rules, new for rules marketing. book. So I always like try to tell people, I know there's a whole lot of new stuff. We could go down a laundry list of it, but if I'm that person that already owns this book, like convince me why I should go out and buy another copy. Yeah. So it's 60% brand new wow. and 40% of the original content has been adjusted so for fluidity. Basically, there's two reasons why I do a revise and expand it. It's only the second time I've ever done one, um, is if there's growing demand on the topic. So do I see the book, mm. there's continuing and growing demand for the book, and there is in this case. Secondly, is there regular points of confusion? So I'm really fortunate to get emails from readers telling me what's working, but also what's not working. And there were, was a few significant sticking points. Under our belt for the last, I think the prior book came out four or five years ago. Under our belt, we have now thousands of implementations. We have a training institution or school or whatever you call this thing, training curriculum that our uh, readers can choose to go through. And we've now over a thousand students, over 2000 students have gone through that program. And so we get feedback. Oh, this is what's working. This is what's not working. This is why I'm confused. And uh, my goal with a book is that no one needs to ask a clarifying question that every ounce of contents in there unlike a speech or a class or a workshop where a student can raise their hand and say, can you give me more details or another angle? In a book, you get one, one shot. <laughs> right. It's the sentence. Yeah. It delivers or not. So it was st stripped down to the bare bones infrastructure of the book, reorganized, and I rebuilt it out. So I think it'll be easier, faster, better. You know, one of the things that I think as an author, you know, you've maybe taken your past and you put some examples and things in, but you know, two, three, four years down the road, you've heard from lots of people. You've got all these like rich treasure stories. of stories, right? And new I think stories, that's, yeah. you know, don't you wish you had those in the beginning, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what really What's makes a great revision. You write your first book. You know, when you write your first book, you don't have much practical experience. At least for me, yes, I have people that I teach on the side, you know, as my side hustle yeah. to my author business on how to do this. And we had our workshops running for a year in advance. 
but there's something different once the book is out because you hear back from people that never go through any of those experiences, just read the book telling you what's working, what's not. And those become good stories. And of course people have gone through it. So I, I mean, I'm biased, but it's a markedly better book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the good news is you had a lot of experience with toilet paper when you wrote your first book. So that helped, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Go straight for the potty humor. Shall we? No. Yeah. A little punch. Uh, All right. So, you know, it's really, uh, it's really popular, I think for, you know, hosts like me to ask questions like, so what's been your biggest learning? But I know that as you continue to write books, you are so engaged with the people that you work with. I think it's fair to ask you, what's been like a new learning for you? Like what's been a big aha that you're like, I don't know why I've never considered this, you know, but this is, you know, this is now how I think about my business. Yeah. So, okay. So I had a call. This is not in clockwork. I'm working on another book called All In. I'm like, this was the defining moment for this book. You ever have you ever have that moment where you're like, I can't find any good employees? And I'm saying this rhetorically, Correct. but that's how I felt. You know, it, some employees are great, some are not a fit. And the feedback is fire slowly, fire quickly. Yeah. If someone's not working out, you gotta get rid of them fast. Right. And I'm like, gosh, how can that always be true? Because it, it seems like there's always this churn of firing and you cling on to a few good people. I got a call from this place in Texas. It's a barbecue, it's called King's Smokehouse or King's Barbecue Smokehouse. And the owner, his name's actually Stephen King, but not that Stephen King, <laughs> called up and said, I took, I bought this place, which first of all, never buy a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Secondly, he said, I took over and he goes, uh, these employees, many of them were just not a fit. They were bad employees. I had to fire those people. He goes, but I couldn't afford to fire people, particularly post COVID, right? Yeah. So instead he goes, I tried this thing. I got to tell you about it. He employed, he didn't even know that there's a technical term out there called psychological ownership. And he goes, I employed it without knowing what it was. So I've been researching this. There's an interesting phenomena. You got to check this out called psychological ownership. What it is, the feeling of possession without legal possession necessarily. And ironically, legal possession does not constitute the sense of ownership. Sometimes actually generates the opposite. So ownership, defining that is where we are all in on something. We, this is important to us. It actually is defining of ourselves. It's part of our purview, I guess. So when you hear someone say, this is my company, they're showing a sense of psychological ownership over, as opposed to this is John's company, that where there's a detachment. So what's interesting is that I, the analogy I use is like renting a car. When I rent a car, they give me responsibilities, care for it, no scratches, filth, gas. When I leave that place after the hundredth ID check, I'm in that freaking Toyota I'm crunching down on the gas pedal. I'm hitting the brakes. I'm hitting the curbs. I don't really care about this car because I've been assigned some certain responsibilities to adhere to. I don't have a sense of ownership. Now the irony or the interesting thing is when I do own something, like I own a car at home, that one I don't mess around with. But here's the ironic part. I don't really own it. I'm making my payments to the bank. They're the legal owners. I just have psychological ownership. So what this guy, Stephen told me, he's like, oh, I started to give people ownership, which is slightly different, subtly different, but significantly different on its outcomes than responsibility. Responsibility is clean the, clean the inventory room, stock everything correctly. So there's this one guy, Joel, it's a long answer, but there's one guy, Joel, who I interviewed subsequently, who was by all definitions, a horrible employee, showed up late to work. Steven hired Joel because his friend asked him to do him a favor, which is the worst way to hire someone. Right. He was a mechanic not an employed mechanic, but he's working on his own cars all the time. So he's covered with grease and he's supposed to be a new waiter. After one week, Steven's like, I got to fire this guy. He calls his friend says, I'm ditching him. He says, give him one more week. Steven acquiesces. And out of a kind of a, a Hail Mary, 
Stephen goes to Joel and says, hey man, it's really, all this stuff is really difficult. I wanna give you ownership over something. You use those exact words. And there was this little box of straws on the bar, you know, the one when you pull the one straw out and all the other straws kind of falling out. He goes, I wanna give that to you. Meaning your job is to maintain that any way you sit, see fit. We're gonna call it Joel's straw box, maintain it. And Joel started doing a good job with it for the next few hours and the next day. And then Steven says, well, hey, you're doing a great job with that. Do you wanna own the bar mat? This guy, Joel says, okay, starts controlling it. Fast forward, he starts this cascade effect. Fast forward now, this is two years later. Joel's his best employee. He does anything for the company. He goes above and beyond what's asked of him. When he sees an opportunity to fix something, he fixes it because he acts like an owner. So I called Joel, I said, why? And he says, listen, he goes, you don't know anything about my background. I had a horrible background. I was abused as a child. I was told I could never own anything. Mm. Now is the first time in my life I was given control over something, the ownership. He goes, I'll do anything for this company. And as I was wrapping the call, I said, Joel, I heard that you're into repairing cars. Tell me about that. He says, yeah. He goes, I love repairing cars. So I want to be a race car driver one day. That's my dream. I said, dude, I, the way you're going, I think this is going to happen. I said, it's going to be such a loss for the barbecue house. And there, there was this long pause and Joel looks back. We're doing over Zoom. He looks right in the camera. <laughs> like he's a pro and he goes, I'm never leaving the barbecue house. I'm going to be a professional race car driver and still work there. <laughs> I was like, dude, how do we find people like you? He didn't have to find the A player. Yeah. He simply started mastering. And there's many elements to it, but he started to master assignment of ownership and Joel's behavior and other people's behavior radically changes. I know who his first sponsor is going to be, right? On the car. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> big, right. big barbecue That's patch right. on his... Yeah, exactly. Back, right? All right, so... That was a great answer. I have a flip sort of side of that one. I asked you kind of what's been a, a new aha for you. What's hard now? And we are going to talk about the book, I promise. But I just want to take the advantage of the years of experience from you. What's hard now that maybe didn't used to be? Okay, so here's what I didn't expect is my goal was not to run all these different... I didn't want to run businesses besides selling books. Like... I've done that. It's okay. It's, I have nothing against it, but I wanted my primary business to be books. But now as a business is growing, we've always partners. It's the challenge is ensuring that every partner is served to the level they want to be served. So instead of me owning all these different businesses, like we started a business for this new book all in this, that's two years away. Yeah. I got to take care of that partner and be a service to them. Clockwork, the new book has a partner and I got to be a service to them. And I didn't, really anticipate the challenges there of catering, but catering in a way that there's balance, that everyone's represented fairly. And the interesting thing is sometimes you know, they raise their hand and say, but I'm not being treated fairly. And it's like, you have to show the documentation. Look, we've done the exact same thing for everybody else. And what we're trying to do is rise the tide and your boat will rise. But you know, the licensee fairly enough says, but what about my boat? It's always you know their boat and not the, which from my perspective, I can't worry about the boats. I gotta worry about the tide. So that striking that balance is a delicate chord. It's necessary. It's important. It's just a little harder than I thought. I thought, the boat, the tides rise and we're all good, but uh, I got to watch for the boats too with them. And now let's hear from a sponsor. You know, everybody's online today, but here's the question. Are they finding your website? You can grab the online spotlight and your customer's attention with SEMrush. From content and SEO to ads and social media, SEMrush is your one-stop shop for online marketing. Build, manage, and measure campaigns across all channels faster and easier. Are you ready to take your business to the next level to get seen? Get SEMrush. Visit SEMrush.com.
semrush.com. That's S-E-M-Rush.com slash go. And you could try it for seven days for free. All right, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about clockwork. There's a lot of ideas in here that, you know, maybe have been incorporated in some fashion in some other books, some other courses, some other people's sure. writing. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about really what's been your inspiration in terms of your own. I mean, essentially, this is a time management, you know, book approach. What's been your inspiration for developing that? Yeah, I mean, I think the inspiration is, I think it's not time management, but that's the benefit yeah. to the owners. I think what it really is empowerment, team empowerment and building processes and systems, which then brings back time management. So we can hone in on what yeah. we want to do. So I think that's the starting argument I make. I think one of the big parts is team empowerment. So one of the kind of pinnacle tests of the book is what I call the four week vacation. And in, in my research of the companies I analyze, 90 X percent plus identified that if the owner was away for four weeks, that the business was experiencing all the elements of its business cycle within those four week periods. So in theory, if I could leave for four weeks, I could leave into perpetuity because everything's happening during four weeks yeah, in these monthly yeah, cycles. Yeah. But then the fear was like, oh, if I leave for four weeks, my employees are like, oh, you're making money off of my sweat. Mike goes to the beach and or the mountains with John. And all I do is work. So that was the fear. But what I found and what I include in the book, and there's actually now every chapter has a section for employees, is that this is actually an empowerment opportunity. We as business owners act like superheroes. Yeah. We swoop in and can fix anything because we know everything about the business, but we leave this wake of damage behind us or we interrupt someone's ability to take true accountability over something because we swing in and take it. When I left my business, I've been doing this for five consecutive years now. When I leave my business each year for four consecutive weeks, I come back and my employees consistently say, oh, I feel even more empowered. I've taken on these responsibilities. Yeah. And then the interesting thing too, I include in this book, we test in our own business three years into this. So two years ago, every employee started taking four week vacations. And it, it's not, it is a benefit to my teammates, my colleagues here, but the real benefits back to the company. Because if Jenna or Jeremy or Izzy or one of our teammates leaves for four weeks, in their absence, we have to cover for them. So there's this backup and redundancy that's being trained. And, and the final assessment is this, everyone's leaving for a period of time at some point yeah. because they retire, maybe illness, uh, an accident happens, life events happen. So this four week vacation concept is something that I think the entire company should be doing to prepare for the inevitable and to strengthen the company. Yeah, I had three employees go out on maternity leave at the same time. One right. Time, right. You know what? And you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but it's reality. Yeah, so yeah. I think we can prepare for that. I actually, the, just this year, took m myself and my director of operations were both out for 10 days at the same time. And we were actually on Lake Powell, which we have no signal at all. So there was zero ability. Cause every now and then, you know, you're like, well, let's just make sure there's no disasters. Right. But there was no ability to, and you're absolutely right. People, we came back and people were like, let me tell you what I did. Right. I mean, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you know, the biggest interrupt to that. And I read about it in the book too, is for, at least for me, it was my own ego. Yeah. When I was away, after like day two, I'm like, oh my God, I need to check in. Right. Like, what are they doing? The place is burning down and then I need to swoop in. But then when I came back and they said they don't need me, I'm like, oh, you don't need me. And like the tears were welling up inside. Like yeah. I'm not needed. Yeah. But it was once I started really understanding that this is a form of empowerment that I again then kind of got my ego back in check and said, okay, this isn't just about me. This is about my teammates and elevating them. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a big concept in the book, the four Ds. 
doing, deciding, yeah. delegating, designing. You can unpack that a little bit, but I was happy to see, and it makes total sense that you had it a 50, which is yeah. downtime, which we've been talking about a little bit. So go ahead and maybe do your quick spiel on unpacking the five Ds now. Yeah. So there's, this is, there's four stages of a business and the business must be serving all of these. But when I say stages, we as an entrepreneur can elevate to the fifth, the fourth stage and, and implement the fifth. So the first stage is doing is the activity that a business must do to generate revenue, to be a service to clients, but it's also the infrastructural work that needs to be done. So I create furniture that I sell to clients. That's a doing activity, but also the invoicing, all the administrative work behind that is all doing work. A business, an optimized business will spend 80 to 90% of its time there. The next level up is deciding is necessary, but only in short spurts. It's kind of like that adrenaline kick. It's good for you until you have a heart attack. <laughs> and so deciding is where the manager, or in many cases, the business owner themselves is making decisions for other people. So-and-so goes off to do the work. I task rapid. They come back a second later and have a question. Oh, do I sort invoices by first name or last name? And I think about it and I give them a decision. I call it Kali. It's an Indian goddess with one head and eight arms. <laughs> the vast majority of small business lives in the deciding trap. One person being the brains for the entire organization and it limits it to about three people, four people max can work there Yeah. to get past that. We have to move to the next D, which is delegation or delegating. Delegating is not the assignment of tasks. That's what we think it is. What delegating truly is the assignment of outcomes. Mm. It's about that empowerment. You know, we agree you and I'm your employee. You say, here's where we need to go. Mike, do you agree? And do you understand why? Yes. Here's what my thoughts are. Guess the outcome. We have a best practice, you know, way we've historically gotten there, but your job is to get us there no matter what. And if there's a disruption or a better idea, take that. And you know this, when I come back with questions, say, hey, John, I have a question. The response is no questions. I hired you for your brain, Mike. Go and figure this out. Yes to that outcome. Yeah. So that's true empowerment of employees. And that moves us, the owner, to the ultimate stage, which is designing. Designing is visioning the goals and outcomes for the <clears> business and then strategizing ways to get there. This is the hardest work, yet we think it's the easiest. We think doing is the hardest, yet that is the easiest. It's easier to dig a hole than it is to solve a Rubik's cube for most people. Yeah. So most people would rather just sit there and sweat it out, digging a hole, thinking we're making great progress. But we got to get the puzzle aligned in the right direction to move our business forward. So get out <laughs> of doing and start envisioning where your business needs to be. The last part is downtime. There was a study that came out of the UK. This is a new addition to the, they identified that the average knowledge worker produces 3.2 hours per day, regardless of the hours worked. You work eight hours, you're producing 3.2, you work five. 3.2. We need to recover. So intentionally give your colleagues downtime. And we do it through breaks or interims. We hire a lot of part-time employees. In fact, the vast majority of our staff is part-time. So downtime is on their own time. We give our part-time workers eight hours of project work, traditionally eight hours of work. They get done in four or five hours. So clearly you know, eight hours things is kind of a ruse. It's really about yeah. the project output. And we do the sabbaticals all to recover emotionally and physically with through downtime. Yeah, there's a lot of <clears throat> a lot of companies, actually a lot of a number of countries studying that whole idea of the four day work week and you know the fact that people are getting as much done because we just, you know, we don't fill it up with silly meetings or acting like we're working. That's right. <laughs> we, we were trying to hear we're small, you know, my my author office were 10 employees and we cut it to a four day work week two years ago, probably because of COVID kind of yeah, forced yeah. it. And so we just no one works Fridays yeah. except for me. I choose to. And my gosh, the output is the same, if not higher. And people come so refreshed on Monday. There's, I asked employees a few days ago, I'm like, how does Sunday night feel? Like, I'm excited. It's a change up again. I'm coming back to work where before it was like, oh my God, the weekend flew by. Do I have to go back to work? So one of the, uh, I'm totally on board with, you've got to get out of doing and get to designing. 
there are some people that are just, well, Mike, let me just say, I think you're a doer. I mean, you are like an action taker. You like to like fuddle with the stuff, right? So does that make, and I think a lot of business owners are that way. So how do you get the right balance? I mean, especially you bring in people to do the doing and you do, you know, so, so not, not, I mean, you've got some people that 80% of their work is doing right. And you've got, obviously the business owner should be spending more time designing, but how do you get them to let go? Because I think that's probably the biggest collective. Yeah, it's a big challenge. You got to go into what's called collective design. Yeah. So it is not the natural tendency for a lot of people. In fact, most people who are doers today start a business because they say, I'm already doing this. Right. I might as well continue to do it on my own, which is basically a freelancer. So we don't have the natural tendency or perhaps capability. Yeah. But when you bring in your collective team, then you can do brainstorming and strategizing and the collective brain can be of service. What I suggest of doing that, if you do that, don't have the meetings in the office where the regular routine is kind of distracting, overwhelming. Get out of the office once a week or once a month, just for a few hours and say, here's the biggest challenge we have. What's everyone's ideas? The other thing is if you get bigger, you may even want to bring in a person that is a designer, yeah. someone that can work on that strategy. Yeah. The risk for owners though is, you know, it's a big blow to the ego in certain cases. I've seen owners take on who they thought were next level designers, executives from these large corporations and stuff. And there's a total disaster yeah. because Small business ownership, you get your hands dirty. Big business, you know, you're kind of pulling strings and sometimes there's a disconnect between Total. the pulling of strings versus actually designing in the trenches. So I noticed you had Gino Wickman, the author of Traction and created EOS system, right? New forward for the book. Would you say clockwork, for, particularly for people out there who are familiar with the principles of EOS, would you say they work pretty well together? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why Gino wrote the forward. So Gino talks about there's different phases of the entrepreneurial journey. Yep. First is just the idea starting up. He actually wrote a great book called The Entrepreneurial Leap. Yeah. It's a great book yep. on like, should I do this? Should I stay or should I go? As the song List, goes. Listeners, go back and you can find my interview with Gino on, on when he came out with that book. Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a, it's a fantastic book. Then when he wrote EOS or Traction, the entrepreneurial operating system, it really requires that first level of management, or second level of management to be in place. It's not just one person yeah. doing it because there's a lot of components. Yeah. So he's like, there's this bridge here and Clockwork fills it. Clockwork is designed from that few employees, a handful of employees up to 25, 50 employees. We have some people that have 100 employees doing it. And then Clockwork has run its life. Once you get past that 50 employees, there's this level of sophistication that starts kicking in where EOS is idyllic for that. It has rhythms and so forth. Lockwork is not about that. It's about bringing a non-efficient business to a, a pretty proficient level of efficiency, proficient efficiency. And then Gino's book takes a little bit further. So he wrote the forward because he saw this as yeah, the bridge yeah. between his two books. Mike, tell people where they can find. I know uh, you've got a number of places, but obviously find more about this book, catch up on any of the books that you're working on, and obviously all of the various programs that you so clockwork.life, because we I believe it's a lifestyle. Clockwork.life is where you can get stuff on this book. And me, you can go to my site. No one can spell Michalowicz. So while Mike Michalowicz exists, the shortcut's MikeMotorbike.com <laughs> because I used to have that as a nickname. It's the only G-rated nickname I've ever had. So the other ones were not usable on the web. So MikeMotorbike.com and uh, you'll get stuff on the books and Clockwork.life for the books. Well, you and I have been hanging out so long that my spell check knows how to spell Michalowicz. So got that. <laughs> That's a victory. That's a victory. <laughs> Mike, always great catching up with you. And uh, hopefully we'll run into you one of these days out there on the road again soon. Oh, that'd be great. Hey, and one final thing before you go, you know how I talk about marketing strategy, strategy before tactics. Well, sometimes it can be hard to understand 
Where you stand in that? What needs to be done with regard to creating a marketing strategy? So we created a free tool for you. It's called the Marketing Strategy Assessment. You can find it at marketingassessment.co, not .com, .co. Check out our free marketing assessment and learn where you are with your strategy today. That's just marketingassessment.co. I'd love to chat with you about the results that you get.